0: It's Tuesday, June 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Can people who are asymptomatic spread COVID-19? The WHO last week said it was very rare, and then had to walk it back saying that the error was confusion due to a muddling of scientific jargon, and that there was a difference between asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic people. Either way, The virus can be spread whether a person exhibits symptoms or not. Greg Barber, staff writer at Wired, joins us for more on the COVID confusion. Next, we have a conversation with MSNBC analyst, former U.S. attorney, and former acting head of the DEA, Chuck Rosenberg, about his podcast, The Oath with Chuck Rosenberg. In one of his latest episodes, he spoke with civil rights activist Maya Wiley about policing in America. They discussed the possibility of real change within law enforcement, and also the culture of silence in the police force. Chuck will also tell me about his time as acting head of the DEA and speaking out against President Trump, saying he approved to have condoned police misconduct back in 2017. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: These individuals need to be followed carefully um, over the course of uh, when they're detected and looking at secondary transmission. We have a number of reports from countries who are doing very detailed contact tracing. They're following asymptomatic cases, they're following contacts, and they're not finding secondary transmission onward. It's very rare. Joining
0: us now is Greg Barber, staff writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Greg. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about coronavirus. Obviously, it's a novel coronavirus. We're learning so much about this as we go along, and there's so much that we don't know about it. And one of the things also That has been troubling is kind of the wording and the terminology used when describing this and describing transmission rates and all that stuff. And last week, we got some confusing things out of the WHO, the World Health Organization. It sounded as if people that were asymptomatic or presenting no symptoms weren't spreading the virus. That was kind of that mixed messaging that we were getting. Then they had to go back and retract it and say, well, it's rare, but it does happen. And it got very confusing very quickly. You know, People that were saying that we shouldn't be shutting down the economy over this use this as a kind of a rallying cry, saying, hey, look, see, even the WHO is saying that these people are not spreading it. But that's not necessarily true. Greg, help walk us through this and talk about people that are asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic, and then all the terminology used to describe it.
1: So on Monday, an epidemiologist named Maria von Kerkhove, who is the technical lead for the World Health Organization's COVID response, she was asked a question about asymptomatic transmission. This is really the key word here. And she said that these cases are very rare, especially these cases when they actually cause other infections of COVID-19. So this got picked up really quickly. Asymptomatic infections are very rare. And this was really a sort of became a rallying cry, particularly among pundits and news organizations that think that the lockdowns are overblown. And there's kind of a neat logic to that. The logic behind shelter in place is that you and I should stay home, even if we feel fine, because we might be at risk to others. But, you know, if asymptomatic infections are rare, then I'm only at risk to others if I'm showing symptoms. Right. So those symptoms are basically a signal to me to stay home. But this got a lot of pushback. Epidemiologists who are basically watching with horror. What it came down to is that there are two different ways of talking about asymptomatic. One, of course, is this general definition where it refers to people without symptoms. But Van Kerkhove was actually using it in a much narrower sense. She meant people who never show symptoms throughout the entire course of their illness. And that's actually somewhat rare. But it's to distinguish from people who might not be showing symptoms right now, but then go on to show symptoms. There's another term for that that's pre-symptomatic. So in a sense, everyone is pre-symptomatic at some point. Usually when you get a new virus, it takes a couple of days for symptoms to develop. And there's actually a lot of evidence that in that stage of the disease, those people are actually quite infectious. There have been studies on this thing called viral load, which is basically like the number of copies of virus that they find inside people. And these pre-symptomatic people actually have really high viral loads. And so that's not to say that they're necessarily infecting other people. One distinguishing factor might just be that they're not out there coughing and sneezing, which can spread the virus. But they do have a lot of infectious virus to share with others, even just by speaking and breathing.
0: One of the things that puts a hinder on what is when it comes to contact tracing, because it's really hard to nail somebody down if they weren't experiencing any symptoms. So they could have got somebody sick. Then later on, you know, it's the job of the contact tracer to kind of find out who it was, who was the source. And it just really complicates everything because they were never experiencing those symptoms.
1: I should step back and say that, as Van Kerkhove clarified, it's actually not really certain whether these true asymptomatic people, these people who never show symptoms, are rare or not. But there's increasing evidence that they are. This is from studies that have tracked coronavirus patients to see if they developed symptoms down the road. And there's often finding that people who maybe they didn't think that they had symptoms, maybe they had like a gastrointestinal issues or something. So they just kind of maybe were classified as asymptomatic In further investigation. it turns out that they just had mild symptoms or just weird symptoms that they didn't think went with COVID-19. So finding out that more over time that these true asymptomatic infections is actually somewhat rare is actually a good thing because as you say, those people are really hard to track in contact tracing because they're probably not very likely to go get a test. These kind of invisible transmitters that contact tracers can't find. Generally, you have to kind of work back to those people because you might find somebody that they infected who's symptomatic and went in and got a test. And then you find just by interviewing all their different contacts that, oh yeah, that person is sort of at the core of multiple infections, or maybe they remember symptoms that they didn't report or didn't think merited a test. So in that respect, you know, I think that their epidemiologists are a little bit heartened by the kind of growing consensus around the rarity of these truly asymptomatic Mm -hmm. cases.
0: Yeah, and there's a bunch of reports that have estimated, the numbers vary, obviously. There's one report that says about 40% of cases are asymptomatic. There's others that lower that down to maybe about 15 to 20% that are asymptomatic. But, you know, it's just, again, like a cautionary thing. You know, these people that might be asymptomatic, but they work in these up-close and personal fields, healthcare workers, hairdressers, cashiers, people that are handing things back and forth with people, they could be spreading it and not knowing it. That's why it's important that they get tested regularly. Everyone else needs to just kind of hold the line and kind of, as we've been saying, wear the mask, wash your hands, and kind of just generally be careful about things.
1: Yeah, this was actually incorporated into... Uh, the strategy of one of the epidemiologists I spoke to last week for testing folks. His name is uh, Marm Kilpatrick, and he works in Santa Cruz County in California. And he's been incorporating these sort of proportion of asymptomatic cases into the strategy for testing, because testing is still at this point somewhat expensive. It's difficult to coordinate. It's difficult to get people to show up at some drive-through spot for a swab. So he's been trying to target basically advertise these tests to people who are getting up close and personal, like those hairdressers and healthcare workers, of course.
0: Gregory Barber, staff writer at Wired, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's a growing chant around defunding the police. And I think there are a lot of people who... If that scares them, they should take that as an incredible vote of lack of confidence in reform, and they should use it as a challenge to show that reform is possible. Joining us now is Chuck Rosenberg, MSNBC legal analyst, former U.S. attorney and federal prosecutor. Chuck was also a former FBI official and former acting head of the DEA. Chuck, you have a podcast out called The Oath with chuck rosenberg thank you very much for joining me
2: my pleasure oscar thanks for having me on your show
0: the podcast uh, this is a conversation that you have with people who have taken oaths to defend the constitution and and you you have a, a ton of great guests on there one of the more recent guests that you had on was maya wiley she's a civil rights activist and msnbc legal analyst as well and you discussed about policing in America and racial injustice. And and obviously, this is a topic top of mind for a lot of people in the wake of what happened with George Floyd, people protesting across the country for police reforms and against police brutality. Tell us about your conversation with Maya and, and policing in general right now in America.
2: Well, I'd be glad to. Uh, just to back up a little bit, uh, Oscar. So the whole idea behind the podcast was to have Folks, as you said, who've taken the oath and served this country, from the military uh, community, from the intelligence community, from the federal law enforcement community, and to have thoughtful conversations with people, you know, without resort to politics or partisanship or hyperbole, just to have thoughtful conversations with interesting people. Maya Wiley was amazing, is amazing. Uh, As you said, civil rights activist, uh, intelligent, articulate, thoughtful. She has a long career sort of at the intersection of education and public policy and in the civil rights movement. And for a time, she was the head of the Civilian Complaint Review Board in New York City. That's the agency that oversees police misconduct and makes recommendations about how the department should handle it. So she had a very good window into the world of policing and police misconduct.
0: How did she feel about the latest incidents with George Floyd? Obviously, there's a ton of video evidence. We know now the officers are charged. I mean, it really seemed like that's a situation that could have been avoided altogether on all parts. You know, the officer, obviously, Derek Chauvin involved with his knee on George Floyd's neck. And then the other officers that just seemingly stood by letting it happen. What were Maya's views on the way this whole thing played out?
2: Well, she had the same reaction that I did. What we saw in the video was sickening, Oscar, reprehensible. But, you know, when you think about it, when you break it down, you actually see two different types of misconduct, both of which are troubling. Obviously, the officer with the knee on uh, Mr. Floyd's neck, who uh, caused his death, was using a tactic that, first of all, should be banned. And second of all, didn't require him to do that to restrain somebody who was in handcuffs. But there's another problem evident in the video and that's something that maya and i talked about on my podcast which is officers standing by and you know writ large officers otherwise perhaps good officers um maybe bad officers but otherwise perhaps good officers who don't come forward who see some misconduct in their department but work in an organization that doesn't have a culture that supports people coming forward. And so I'm speaking now more broadly than about Minneapolis, but you have to create a culture where an otherwise good officer who sees something that's wrong will be supported and not ostracized, supported and not shunned if he or she comes forward to report the misconduct. And that's the thing that is so important to change in um, police culture and frankly, in any culture, in hospitals and airlines and accounting firms, People have to be supported when they see something wrong and they have to feel like they can speak up about it.
0: You know, a lot of people, when they talk about this stuff, they speak through their own personal experiences and and you see the protests going on and they're angry at police. They're angry at the institution. So how do you have that conversation with people that, yes, there are good people in law enforcement and we do have to weed out these bad people?
2: In some ways, I think the good cop, bad cop, conversation oversimplifies the problem. Of course, there are good cops. In fact, I grew up in law enforcement. That was my professional home for many years. I know there are good cops. In fact, I said on the podcast, and I'll say it uh, to you as well, Oscar, I believe the large majority of cops are good cops. But that in and of itself doesn't sort of address the problem right? It's not as if we have a bad cop screening system. I mean, bad cops can, you know, pass physicals and written examinations and, um, you know, pass the interview process and get into a department. The question is, how do we get rid of bad cops? You know, some police chiefs have said, you know, the unions are too strong. Maybe it's feckless city management. Maybe it's bad um, management within the department. Here's the problem. Uh, you have 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. And so the problem in one place, maybe a sophisticated large city police department that's well resourced, can look very, very different than the problem in some other jurisdiction, maybe an unsophisticated small and under-resourced department. And so when we talk about law enforcement, I think people have to remember you're talking about 18,000 different iterations of law enforcement. Now, I can also tell you... Um, what I saw in Minneapolis repulsed me. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking about the protests. Let me be absolutely clear. What repulsed me is what the officers did to Mr. Floyd. Uh, and the cops I know and the, law, the federal law enforcement officers I know who saw that felt the same way because they worked so hard to build bridges to the community. And that good work, that hard work can be undone uh, by what happened in Minneapolis.
0: You know, there's a lot of people that still don't believe there could be any type of real change. That's why we're hearing calls to defund police. How does she feel? How do you feel about the possibility of real change within law enforcement?
2: I think we both feel the same way, which is that we are better today than we were five or 10 or 20 years ago and that we have a long way to go, that both of those things can be true. Uh, that we fixed a lot of problems, but we certainly haven't fixed all of them. And there is an underlying skepticism uh, in the communities that we serve uh, and that we have to, uh, you know, do better. It's absolutely clear to to me that we have to do better. And the other thing that I think has changed um, is how fast information moves in our society. Now, that's not a brand new thing, Oscar. Uh, But, you know, 20 years ago, if uh, the police did to Mr. Floyd what they did in Minneapolis a few weeks ago, we may never have heard about it. We certainly wouldn't have seen it. And seeing it makes it very, very real, incredibly visceral. Uh, And I understand the anger and I understand the skepticism and I understand the disappointment. And so I think cops have to do better. The fact that they're getting better isn't good enough. We need to change a lot about policing. And, you know, you mentioned defund. I think that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But if by defund, you mean that uh, cops ought to be getting out of certain lines of work. uh, I agree. You know, uh, the mental health system in so much of our country is broken uh, and cops encounter mentally ill people on the streets all the time. And we've turned it into a law enforcement thing when really it should be a public health thing. And so we have to think carefully about what it is we want cops to do Uh, and what we train them to do, what they're good at, and what they're not so good at.
0: When these conversations about police and police reforms, there's a lot of talk about leadership. And as you mentioned, it's very local. There's so many police departments throughout the country. But on the grander scheme, uh, leadership that comes directly from our president, you were the former acting head of the DEA, and there was a time when you were there and the president had Whether jokingly or not, he said, Hey, if you get somebody and you throw them in the paddy wagon, you know, they're thrown in rough. I said, Please don't be too nice. You spoke out at the time and said that it appears that the president appeared to have condoned police misconduct. Whether he was joking or not, how do you feel about the way people have these conversations, the way President Trump has these conversations?
2: I was deeply disturbed by what the president said. You're referring to a speech that he gave in July of 2017. In Suffolk County New York uh, in which in my view he clearly condoned uh, police violence I don't believe for a minute that he was joking and that was uh, deeply troubling and concerning to me Oscar and here's why when we arrest somebody whether in federal law enforcement or local law enforcement we have a special obligation to that person to take care of them we may not approve of what they've done but they're now in our custody and we have a moral, ethical, and legal obligation to make sure that they're safe. And so, this notion that we would treat them more roughly, that we would, you know, sort of bang them around in the police car, or not put our hands on their heads as we help them in to the back seat, really struck a nerve with me. Uh, the president did later say he was uh, just joking. I don't believe for a minute that that's true. And so, I wrote an email to my entire workforce just reiterating what I believe that they all already knew, that we have that special obligation to care for people in our custody uh, and that the type of language that the president was using was completely unacceptable. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad I wrote the email. I never intended it for public distribution beyond my agency. Uh, It got out. I guess that's what happens when you send something to, you know, 14,000 people. But so be it. I stand by every word of it. Look, I think words matter, and I certainly think that words from the top matter, whether it's the president or a mayor or a governor or a police chief or your shift supervisor. They have to take the obligation to treat people in the right way seriously. And if they don't, and they don't use the right words and they don't use the right language and they don't mean what they say, then you send a very dangerous and wrong signal to the rank and file. People look up to leaders for leadership. And we have a moral obligation and a legal obligation, as I said earlier, an ethical obligation to guide them in the right way.
0: The third season of The Oath with Chuck Rosenberg is out now. Definitely check out his episode with Maya Wiley. Chuck is an MSNBC legal analyst, former U.S. attorney and former acting head of the DEA. Chuck Rosenberg, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Oscar.